This morning we continue in our series on who is Jesus, and we want to look at Jesus and his example of submission uh, to us today, and this is closely related to another attribute of Jesus that has defined our study along the way as well. And that, of course, is the characteristic of humility. One will never get to the point of submission without humility. It takes humility to get to a point where you're willing to submit to God and His will. You're willing to submit in your relationships as the Bible defines that to be expected of believers, but that all revolves around humility. I was having a conversation with one of our members before the gathering this morning, and we were talking about important characteristics for people to have, especially those in leadership. And this gentleman said to me, you know, trusting and obeying is so critical to walking the Christian life and and the journey with Jesus and being an example. And that is true, because out out of a humble heart comes that submission that is necessary And then that's what makes it possible for us to trust and obey. So there is a correlation, and these things are connected. And that's why we want to talk about them today. So who is Jesus? Well, Jesus today for us in our study is our example of submission. But don't forget, it's rooted in his perfect humility. So I want to spend some time just talking to you about humility as we begin our study this morning. Someone defined it this way. They said humility is this. It is living with the right understanding of who God is, who I am, and who you are. And Jesus gives us a perfect example of that. If you have your scriptures this morning, you have a copy of them on a device or hard copy, please turn to Philippians chapter 2. I just want to spend some time by way of introduction looking at this passage and reminding us that Jesus had this right. He had this perfectly right And he showed us this example of humility, and that led into the submission. In fact, we find that submission even being talked about in in this wonderful passage in Philippians 2, uh, beginning there in verse number 5, of course. It says here, the Apostle Paul writing to the saints at Philippi in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, or being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Now, uh, that is a way of saying literally uh, from the language here that Jesus emptied himself. He, he, He totally, completely emptied himself. He did not divest himself of his deity but he empties himself. He made himself nothing. Your translation may say he made himself of no reputation. That means he emptied himself. And he did this by taking the very nature of a servant. So that defines what it means that Jesus emptied himself. Has nothing to do with the quantity or quality of his deity, okay? It has everything to do with the fact that he is now going to show that as he has emptied himself, he is going to be a humble servant who submits to the Father's will. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he took on a real human body. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Humility 
precedes obedience and submission. And Jesus humbles himself and he evidences and manifests his humility by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus shows us perfectly that he has the right understanding of who God is, right? He has the right understanding of the Father. He submitted himself to the Father. We're going to look at that in great detail today. He also understood who he was. He truly uh, emptied himself and became a servant. And he also had the right perspective of others, didn't he? I really believe he saw every person, regardless of who they were, in all aspects as an opportunity to serve. Humility leads us to submission, to trusting, and to obey. The revelation of his glory includes seeing one so high in his transcendence, who went so low in his condescension to bring us so near in our redemption because we are so dear to him as the bride. The Most High God went so low because of such great desire to partner with us. We are awestruck by his power, overwhelmed by his humility, and made confident by his love. It's easy for us to say that we are humble and broken until the real test comes, isn't it? By the way, always beware of somebody who has to tell you that they're humble. Has that ever happened? <laughs> somebody puts their own humility out there, and it's like, oh, yeah, I would have believed you, but, <laughs> right? So you don't have to tell people you're humble if you're humble. It's easy for us, though, to think we are and broken until the real test comes, and we are put in a humbling position. We may wonder, why aren't we recognized doesn't feel good. We react and don't like it. We want to be important and we are often so proud. But Jesus became nothing during his life on earth. Remember the scripture? He emptied himself and he gives us his example so that we may follow in his steps. In fact, the only character trait that he proclaimed about himself was this. Jesus didn't put on humility to just accomplish a task on earth. Humility is part of his eternal nature. As we understand his humility, it should produce admiration, inspiration, and confidence in us. In his lowliness of heart, we find true rest for our souls. The most humbling thing that one can do is to look upon how Jesus responded to suffering and mistreatment. His whole life was ordered around the attribute of meekness. It was his greatest pursuit. From the moment he was born, the father was contemplating his own humility in the person of his son. Love would be openly displayed as Jesus went lower and lower. And anyone who truly looks upon the man Christ Jesus and his meekness will be left staring at the great mystery. How can one so strong be so tender as he stoops so low? Looking upon Jesus as the great sanctifier to areas of pride and anger in the human heart. So today, with that backdrop and that foundation concerning humility, we want to look at the submission of Jesus and what that looked like. And that's what today's study is, is several points that show us Jesus submitting to the glory of his Father, 
to the humility of himself and for the good of the people around him. That's what we find in Jesus today, and that's what we want to be reminded of. And let us look deep into our own hearts as we contemplate this to see where we are, to see how we are living. Some of these things will sound so simple to us because they are simple, but they may not be easy to live out. And if areas of pride, of resistance, of a lack of submission are identified in our own lives and hearts, let us focus there and let us run to Jesus because he has a solution. He has a solution for those pride problems in our own life. So how do we see Jesus submitting? We're going to build a theology as we go along. First of all, he really had no agenda of his own. Doesn't that immediately and drastically set him apart from from every other world religious leader who claimed to be Jesus or who claimed to be the Messiah or who claimed to be right, the father of the true religion, whatever it is that they are, are propagating in their own name, it absolutely sets him aside and apart from all of that. Jesus, the founder and leader and genesis of Christianity, the authentic uh, belief system for the world, came, but he didn't have his own agenda. He didn't come speaking even his own name. We come to John chapter 6, for I have come down from heaven, it says, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Let that just ring true in your heart and mind today. Kind of resonate there a little bit and, and, and just lodge there for a moment and think about, think about our own life, my life, your life. Whose will are we really living to accomplish today? What determined the decisions that we made over the course of the last week? What determined those decisions? What we wanted to do? What we wanted to accomplish? What we wanted to be noticed for maybe? I think that that will help us to see whether or not we're living for the Father's will. Do we even know what God's will was for us last week? Do we even know that? Did we stop to consider answering that question, right? Now, I don't think that you find some some mysterious place somewhere and say all the right words and, and do all the right things and God appears to you and says, here is my specific will for you this week. In fact, on Monday, this is, no, it doesn't work that way, does it? But God works and moves in the affairs of men, doesn't he? And you know what? He gave us some opportunities over the course of the last week that if we took advantage of them, we were squarely where he wanted us to be in his will. Did we miss them? Did we fulfill them? Did we allow them to be crowded out because we had an agenda for last week that was totally inconsiderate of what his will may be? Those are the questions we need to ask. And we need to assess the opportunities that come our way and see that God is a God of divine appointments. He truly orchestrates things in our lives, wanting us to take advantage of them and serve Him and live for Him. But if we are not even considering or thinking that He does have a will for us, we are going to miss most, if not all, of those golden opportunities. That's how God shows us and directs us. So let us be like Jesus in this. Hebrews 10 says, Then I said, See, 
It is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. It was a matter of prophecy too. This was the design that was had for Jesus' life and ministry. And you know what? With the exception of deity and perfection, there's no difference in how God has designed us and how he wants us to live. No difference. We are here to glorify him. That's it. We are here to glorify him. And through all the ages that we find given to us and laid out in biblical literature, in every one of those, as we call them, dispensations, that was the main point. The main point was people are here to glorify God. And he chose various people through the various economies of time to glorify him in various ways. And we see the shifts and the pivots as we look through biblical history. But the one main theme for all of humanity was to glorify the Father among all nations. That's why we're here. And we don't get there until we understand that we're not here to live out our own agenda. Let's consider this together and what it should look like in our lives. The next thing I want to point out to you is that Jesus followed God's example, did nothing on his own, like what we find in John chapter 5. What does it tell us here? First of all, in verse 19, then Jesus replied, I assure you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son also does these things in the same way. Just a complete recognition of the father's involvement in, in what is happening in this life, on this earth, and a strong, a totally committed desire to act consistently with what we see in the Father. Again, beautiful submission there. No agenda of his own. Understanding and knowing what God is up to and falling in line with that, doing nothing on his own. We come to verse 30 of the same passage. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Wow. What a place to be. What a place to live. You see, when we, through humility and a proper view of God, understand and know our own insufficiency and meet the needs thereof with the all-sufficiency of the Father, we can live here too. But not until then. Not until we come to the end of ourselves. Not until we see that we are insufficient and even incapable can we ever approach this kind of living reality in our own experience? Beautiful, isn't it? Next of all, Jesus follows the Father's instructions too. How many of you know God has given us a lot of instructions, right? A lot. I hope that you're continuing to pursue uh, reading through the Bible this year again. Acquainting yourself with everything that God has said, even those difficult passages in the Old Testament, right? Man, plow through. It just, just knowing what God said should be all the motivation that we need to read those difficult passages because God spoke them. God is speaking to us as we read his word. That should motivate us. Now, how many of us here this morning 
uh, like to read instructions? Anybody just love instructions? You like to read instructions? Who, who likes that? Just raise your hand. I'm curious. All the women are doing this, maybe, or I don't know. Maybe not. Some of you don't. You don't really like instructions. If you raised your hand and shouldn't have, you probably just got thumped, right? Typically, those of us who see ourselves as self-sufficient, right, we can figure this out, okay? We don't like to read instructions. We, we have the answers. We can figure, I can just look at this thing. And maybe some of you here are naturally that way, and you don't need instructions. Maybe, maybe. But what happens when you get to the end of that task, you're assembling something, and you have leftover pieces? What do you do then? <laughs> Before who finds out, right? <laughs> Greta pointed to herself. Right, right. You get the point, don't you? God's given us an instruction manual, and it's, it's not just words on a page. It's, it's the living Word of God that was, that was totally lived out and manifested through Jesus. So He doesn't just throw a book at us and say, have fun. He said, no, here's the book, but I sent Jesus, and, and my book testifies of Jesus, and He shows you what this looks like in full living color. Wouldn't that be fun? If, if your instruction manual came with illustrations like that, you think you'd read them more? Probably, right? So here it is, though. Jesus understands the importance of this in John 5, 36, but I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I'm doing, uh, I'm doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father has given me works to accomplish. He has given me instruction. He has told me what it is He wants me to do. And I'm dedicating my life and ministry, my entire existence on this earth, to those things that the Father has given me to accomplish. He gave me instructions. He's given me what He wants me to do. I'm going to follow those instructions. I'm going to do it perfectly. We have the testimony of God on written page today, God's preserved word. In fact, he said it's so preserved that not one jot or tittle is going to pass away. He, gave, he gives us a wonderful promise of preservation. Do you believe you have God's word today? Let's try that again. Do you believe you have God's word today? Yes, he has spoken to us in his word. Well, let's read it. Let's enjoy it together. Let's dissect it together and apply it to our lives and follow his instructions like Jesus did. Humility precedes this step, doesn't it? Submission. But I'm telling you, if we figure that out on a personal level, there is no better life. You know, Jesus didn't even one day decide to come, did he? Because he was sent by the Father. Another example of his submission. He didn't in human vernacular, wake up one day and decide to come to earth? That's not how it happened. This was a plan before the foundation of the world because God was so intent on loving us and drawing us to himself and saving us from our sins that he had this plan before the foundation of the world was even laid physically. Somewhere in the eternal counsels of the Godhead, this was the plan. And I don't know any more than that, okay? So don't ask me. I don't know any more than that. I just know that's how it happened. It's hard to wrap your head around something that's eternal truth and eternally existent in the Godhead because it never just happened. It never just was thought of. It wasn't a plan that they came up with. It was the plan in eternity past. I don't know how that works. I just know that has to be true because I know what the Bible teaches me about who God is. But here's this plan 
that Jesus would be sent by the Father before the foundation of the world. So he didn't decide one day to do it on his own. Even that found its genesis in the Father. John 5, the Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. But the Father who sent me, Jesus said. John 7, as he was teaching in the temple complex, Jesus cried out, you know me and you know where I am from, yet I have not come on my own. But the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. In other words, Jesus was saying, I am the one who was sent. You know the Father through me. And he wanted them to accept that truth. That was his passion, to get people to accept that. Flowing out of this, we understand that Jesus did not come in his own authority, right? No authority. Now, we're going to talk about this, though. There was authority, but it wasn't his own. He came in the Father's name, didn't he? I love the reminder in Matthew 28. I love this. Look at this. Verse 18, then Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been what? Given to me. It was a gift. It was a, it was a trust. It was part of the stewardship of Jesus that came from the Father in some, some perfect way that we probably don't understand. This, this interaction between Jesus, the God-man, being part of the Trinity and being deity, and these transactions that take place sometimes defy our human finite understanding, but that's what Jesus said happened. He was given the authority from God in heaven and on earth. There was no place that wasn't subject to this authority in any of the created universe. Nothing existed outside the authority. But Jesus said, look, this authority has been given to me. It's not mine of my own. It's given to me. I think what he was saying was, there is no authority outside of me being God. There is no authority. It's not me as the man, the perfect man who has this authority. I, because you have to understand something. These people were seeing Jesus as a human, and he had to remind them of his deity because he wasn't flaunting. And I think maybe that's what he's doing here. Trying to get them to understand that the authority that he was speaking to them in and through, yes, you're seeing me as a man, but this isn't human stuff. This is God stuff. And I only have this because of the deity that comes from me being a part of the Godhead. Wow, think about the authority there. Think about the clarity. Think about the assurance and the affirmation and the encouragement that this must have been to his followers. Why can't it encourage us in the same way? Maybe because we struggle with wanting our own authority. We want things to be according to how we think. We want authority that really will lead, if it's that kind of authority, leads to corruption, not glorifying the Father. In John chapter 5, he says, I've come in my Father's name, not mine, not my authority, my Father's. You, you don't know except, yet you don't know except me. If someone who else comes in his own name, you will accept him, Jesus says. It was interesting, toward the end of the year, the Bible class that I taught here in a local Christian school, I found some very riveting kind of documentary things that have been produced on, on some of the cults from the past. And 
I found one that uh, we showed about Jonestown and Guyana, right, Jim Jones. And then that was, that was amazingly done. And then I found one about uh, David Koresh too, right, in Waco, Texas. You remember all of that? And I was able to show those. One of them was over an hour. I had, I had actually an hour and a half. I had to show it in three segments. And my class had worksheets, you know, that they were filling out. And then they had to pull all that stuff together and uh, use it in, in their final examination that they took last week. But one of the things that we pointed out in the class as we look at this ties in with our point today is that you had these men, especially David Koresh, right, who actually purported himself to be the Messiah. And he wasn't saying he, he had received this from the Father. It was all about him. It was all about his name and his agenda and his will and his instructions that he was giving to these people that were just in bondage to this cult. And, and obviously, many of them meeting horrific deaths. All the children in that scenario died. All the kids died in that compound in Waco, Texas. Think about that. He was coming in his own authority. And we made a contrast between how you can identify false leaders of cults. So these kids need to be protected in their minds and hearts from being drawn into these false groups that have a strong sense of belonging. That's why they're so powerful. Warning these kids, what do you see in these leaders? Are they humble like Jesus or are they all about themselves? We watched this documentary, had live footage of these men talking, and I asked my class, I said, how many times did they talk about Jesus or God? And as we watched those films, in those films, the answer was zero. It was all about them, their plan, their agenda, who they were. That's the test, isn't it? And Jesus is identifying that as a test, and he gives us this beautiful example of coming in the Father's authority. When he taught, he taught what the Father wanted him to teach. And in turn, he glorified the Father. John chapter 7. The one who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. The one who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus, when he spoke and taught, did not speak for himself. He taught what the Father had given him, and he glorified the Father. When anyone stands before you to teach or preach, whether it's from this platform or any of the classrooms that we have or, or anything that we use to teach and, and preach the Scriptures, make sure, be, be like those Berean Christians, right? Make sure you verify what is being said and make sure it is consistent with the Word of God. That is the standard. What the Father has given us in His Word is the standard and when someone speaks, if they're speaking for themselves and inconsistent with the message from the Father in the revealed Word of God, then you know there is a problem. This is why all of us must be careful students, and we must all understand how to study and interpret the Scriptures. See, I hope you know and understand that not everything that glitters on religious television is gold. Do you get that? you understand that? Not everything that's going to be preached on those religious channels is going to line up with Scripture. In fact, my experience has been that most of it is baloney. Okay? There are some good teachers out there who have television programs. I'm not discounting those. But the vast majority of these television stations that are dedicated to 
media churches and teaching and preaching in this way are teaching error. Be careful. Be careful. Next of all, when Jesus judges, he judges under the Father's authority. Again, it's not about him. John chapter 8 says that if I do judge, my judgment is true because I am not alone, but I and the Father who sent me judge together. Now listen, if there was ever a time in our lifetime when this was necessary and important and good for the church, it is now. Because we are faced with with living in a truth is relative culture where many people believe, maybe most people in the unregenerate world today believe that there's no such thing as absolute truth. So if you make a judgment and you say absolutely that something is right and something else is wrong, you are placing yourself squarely in the crosshairs of the culture who hates God. So when you do that, make sure you're doing it for what's right. And the only way you know what is right is if you are judging after the judgment of the Father because you know what he's given you in his word. If you can stand on a biblical position that is clearly defined in Scripture and call out what is wrong in the world as a believer should, do it. If you can't, wait. (laughs) Make sure your position is clearly defined in Scripture. If you have that, then you stand on absolute eternal truth, and it doesn't matter who likes that. It's okay not to be liked. I hope we understand that. It is okay not to be liked. Often, standing for truth causes that response from people who don't know and understand or who denounce truth. It's okay. There weren't a whole lot of people who liked Jesus either. Right? That's why he died. There are a lot of people that hated him. It's okay. It's okay to be there if you're standing on truth. In all of this, amazingly, of course, and, and not so much from a, from a God perspective, we expect this from Jesus, right? He always pleased the Father. We can't do that, but we can sure die trying, and that's what we should do. We should strive to always please the Father, not ourselves. In John 8, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. What a testimony. We can't do that, practically speaking, but we can invest our lives by the grace of God and through the Holy Spirit doing it as best we can for the glory of God. And he will be glorified even in our imperfections. He will be, but pleasing him. And finally, of course, he submits to the Father's will even when it's costly. That was the passage that was read at the beginning. Let's read it again as we close, and then we'll be finished with our study today. Matthew 26. Here is this example of of costly submission, of Jesus expressing a desire, right? Expressing a desire, but then saying to the Father, it's okay if that desire does not become reality. And every one of us must live there every day of our life. It's okay if my desire 
doesn't become reality because what really matters is what God desires. Jesus perfectly gives us that example. Let's begin reading verse 36 there. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he asked Peter, so couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. And after leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the time is near. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Here's my desire. If it's not your will, Father, then let your will be done and not mine. I think he was looking forward to the time when he was going to say those words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The moment when he was bearing our sins in his body on the tree. We've talked about that tension in the Godhead, in our study of theology this year. He was looking ahead to that, but he didn't want to experience that unless it was absolutely the will of the Father. And obviously, it was. And we can all be thankful for that today, can't we? Because we have forgiveness and redemption because of that. Jesus says, this is my desire, but whatever you want, Father, is fine with me, even if it's the most painful thing I will ever experience. And for me, and my understanding, that probably was the most painful moment on the cross for Jesus when he said to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that's okay. If that's your design, if pain is your design for me, it's okay because that's your will for me. I'm going to endure it, I'm going to glorify you through it, and I'm going to submit to it if that's what you want. Again, there is no way to get here without humility. And I hope that we'll all consider it today, the importance of the connection between these two, and that we'll really look at our own lives. Where are we today? Where are we in all of this? And what steps of growth can we take this week to glorify the Father through submission so that our hearts are in a place where Jesus' heart was here in Matthew's gospel. Can we pray together as our worship team returns? Father, thank you. Thank you for love and mercy and grace, the peace that comes from all of this to us, peace with you because we're no longer your enemies, 
and a peace that is from you that sustains us every day. Thank you, Father, for this. Help us now to be real and honest about ourselves as we assess our own spiritual condition. Father, identify for us our own pride that keeps us from submitting like Jesus did. God, forgive us and and help us to understand that forgiveness through confession and repentance. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.